The following is a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Listen, guys, it's always a joy and privilege for me to preach God's words to you. Um, you know, one of our desire is that as we go through this book in Acts, we get a glimpse of the people of God and how the Spirit works through them and accomplishes His unstoppable mission in the life of people. This is not just something that happened in the past. It certainly did, but it has set the tone for everything that has been going on throughout church history and today. And so as, as your pastors here, we really believe that as we walk through just this, the, the early life of this community of faith, that it, it will shape us. It's going to encourage us. It's going to challenge us. And there are things that we can learn as we watch how God is working through his people. And so as Sheldon mentioned, we're going to be finishing chapter 1, looking at verses 12 to 26. So for those who do have their Bibles with them and their, their journals, let's read this together. And so it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his boils gushed out. And it became known to all inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. 
for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostolship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Lord, may the entrance of your word bring light and understanding to us. May it shape us and may it accomplish all that it should accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I want to point out something to us here. You know, throughout time, human beings have come up with all sorts of ways to navigate the uncertain waters of decision-making. And so, for those of us who probably grew up in the 90s, you may remember one of these eight ball cubes. You guys remember it? This eight ball, and then you would shake it. It had blue water in it. And then you ask a question, all right, um, should I go and do this? And they shake the ball, and they look at it, and then you see that it spins, and it has, and it's not a doppy thing. It's just different, random answers that could apply to many things. That's all it was, you know. So it had a little thing in it that the answer could apply to most things, right? And you'll shake it, and they will do that. All right, maybe that's not what you remember. How about decisions that came down to the rhythmic sound of eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a tiger by his toe, if he hollers, let him go, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. There's another part that I didn't know. Really? Okay. All right, maybe then, as it relates to decision-making, the flip of a coin, a simple heads or tails is the deciding factor of fate, be it for trivial matters or for very significant matters in life. One of my favorites that I remember is the just and the fair rock, paper, scissors. Now listen, many decisions in the Taylor household came down to rock, paper, scissors. I remember different points in our marriage when we would hear the loud explosion coming from a diaper we both discern hmm this is gonna be a messy one and then we look at each other and we say rock paper scissors for it rock paper scissors all right that's you 
listen, it has saved many of arguments in our household, decided by the fate of a rock, paper, and scissors bottle. But let me ask you a question. When faced with a decision of monumental importance, would we still rely on these tools of chance? I mean, at a casual glance, the scriptural passage that we just read this morning seems to portray a very similar reliance on chance. The end of the chapter sees the apostles casting lots, a method that is really very similar to flipping of a coin for heads and tails to decide who is going to be the new member to fill the void left by Judas. I mean, you may be asking yourself, why would anyone entrust themselves to such a significant decision, by the way, to some randomness like lots? I mean, you ask, wait, there needs to be some more serious approach to something like this, right? However, you see, as we get into this text, we're going to discover that this passage isn't merely a lesson on decision-making. Instead, it gives us a glimpse into the divine orchestration of God's unfolding plan. You see, here's the thing. A decision was already made. God has chosen his man. A plan was set in motion way before that was gradually being revealed to this community of disciples who were committed to certain things that positioned them to know and embrace those plans. What we see is a community of believers who were anchored in the scriptures and reliant on the Lord through prayer. And so this is what I hope you and I will leave with understanding, that we are to embrace God's unfolding plan through being rooted in the word and in prayer. You can write that in your journals. We embrace God's unfolding plan through being rooted in the word and prayer. We're going to walk through the rest of chapter 1 in three points. And so in verse 12 to 14, we're going to call that the dedication of the disciples. And then in verses 15 to 20, the demise of Judas. And then in verses 21 to 26, the decision. And so let's look at the first few verses, the dedication of the disciples. Now, if you would remember, if Acts almost operates like a sequel of sorts. Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. And so what you're going to see in our passage is Luke takes the time to close a few plot holes for us, right? Again, the book of Luke ends with Jesus' ascension into heaven, and like any good sequel, Acts picks up right there. Joel last week spoke about how this conversation that went down with Jesus and the disciples and how before he left, he gave them a promise and a mission. They are to go to Jerusalem and they are to wait on the promised Holy Spirit who will empower them for the mission. I just want to remind us in Acts 1.8, 
This is what the promise and the mission was. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Guys, listen, that verse in a, in a, in a real way operates like the summary statement for the entire book of Acts. It's a perfect summary. Watch the Holy Spirit at work in his people as they become a witness from where they are now, but also to the ends of the earth. I mean, can you sense that type of anticipation? If you remember, you, you saw a group of scared and very frightened disciples. Jesus just got crucified. The guy that they've been following all this time, and now he is dead. People are scattering. The leader is gone. But then, he's not gone. He is back. And he comes and he talks to them. And don't just stay there. We literally saw a man come off of the ground, go all the way up in the sky, disappear. You're standing oh, and an angel say, hey guys, what, what you still watching? He told you what was happening. He told you he's coming back. No, go on. Listen, I don't know if you need any more motivation like that. But I can imagine how they were feeling. All right, it's time. So they are now going back. Luke listing the disciples going back to Jerusalem, waiting for this promise, waiting for the empowerment. And in verses 12 to 14, we see Luke lists a couple of the people who are present there. We see him list a few people that you would expect. So you see the, the disciples. And he goes through and lists all the names except for Judas. All right. Okay. So Judas is not here. All right. We're going to hear about that a little more. He also mentions that there are women there. No doubt some of the very women who were there first testifying about Jesus' resurrection. But of note, hear this. Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now, again, if you were going off of Luke, the last time you heard about this, and even when you look at the other Gospels, as it relates to the family members of Jesus, they were quite skeptical of Jesus' ministry. Going as far as in the book of Mark to see him in a crowd and say, yo, go for him. In mud. Come. Come, come, Jesus. Come, Jesus. They were concerned about Jesus. And with Luke having an account where Jesus was told in a crowd that, hey, your mother and your brother outside looking for you. And then he turns around to the crowd and says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's the last testimony that Luke gives about his family members. And so can you, can you imagine then that just this little glimpse in Acts is showing an about face, right? This is a total 180. These guys are no longer just merely family by blood. 
they are now a part of this newly formed family of faith. And then verse 14 gives a very important note as far as what these guys are doing. He says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Again, that's just very interesting to see because these guys are dedicating themselves to prayer. It's very interesting to note. They got the promise. They got the plan. They have their marching orders. Wait for the spirit. They know the long-term mission. They know what's going to happen. They have the blueprint of sorts. Yet they're still praying. You see, we must always remember that prayer should not be limited just to find out what we must do next. I need some direction for life, Lord. What, what, what should we do? The disciples really show that even though they know what the plan is, they know what the mission is, prayer is not just giving them direction, but directing their hearts and their gaze to the Lord. You see, for us, we must never forget that prayer in that God does not just want to give you and I information. But through prayer, he is kind to move towards us in fellowship. And so as they waited, they fellowship together and they prayed. May we, GFC, be marked by the same type of posture. You see, God has promised to accomplish his mission through the life of the apostles. But we come now at something that is missing. Remember, I told you all the people here. Who is missing? Judas is missing. This plot hole needs to be filled. Luke told us that there are 11 disciples. What has happened to Judas? And so we are at our second point, folks. Verse 15 to 20. The demise of Judas. As far as Judas was concerned, again, in the book of Luke, the last time we heard about him was in chapter 22. And there, Luke speaks of how through Judas, though he was numbered among the twelve, he went away and conspired with religious leaders to betray Jesus. They were very glad and agreed to give him money. We see that in chapter 22, verses 3 to 6. And then later in the chapter, the last time we see Judas appear, he comes with weapons blazing. But the weapon of choice is his lips. He betrays with his lips. And that's the last we hear about Judas in the Gospel of Luke. So again, one can imagine this must have been a real sticking point for everyone. Again, Luke says there are about 120 people gathered in the upper room. Jesus just told them about the grand mission that they're going to accomplish through the apostles. But they are having to come to terms with this. What happened to that other apostle? Guys, remember, Judas, he was chosen by Christ himself. Judas, one who was there from the very beginning. He was at every Bible study. He was at every prayer meeting. He attended all the mission trips. He handed out bread and fish with them. 
at the miracle of the feeding. He was there in the boat watching Jesus calm the storm, watching Jesus walk on water. When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, he was there. He probably came back giving testimonies of healing and deliverance too. Yet no longer part of the crew. What are they to do about that? Is this all still a part of the playbook? There seems to be a spanner in the wheels of the plan. But no, we see from this verse, the spanner itself was always a part of the plan. You see, God's continuing mission through the apostles has not been derailed. A matter of fact, this critical juncture they were at in terms of Judas and his fate is intended for a purpose. So Peter stands up. In verses 16 to 17 and says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. What do we see Peter do? At the beginning of his speech, he teaches us, first of all, a very important distinction about the scriptures is something you would probably hear us say this whole idea that the scriptures it is divine inspiration again what you mean how did the psalmist talk about judas the psalmist never said judas there's no psalm you can pull on that names the name judas but what we realize about scripture is that as David wrote, it seemed to have been the Holy Spirit at work in what David is saying. And this is a very important thing for us to understand about God's word. You see, while the disciples for sure are going to wait for the gift of the Spirit among them, they're going to experience a, a, a very unique type of empowerment to accomplish the mission. They, they're going to have this assurance of God's presence with him. You have to realize that the disciples then, they did not undermine the power and the impact of the divine nature of God's word. The scriptures was still central to their life. GFC, all of scripture is how the spirit primarily speaks now to us. It's how he spoke to the disciples then as they were navigating their circumstance. From the Old Testament to the New, every page reveals God's instruction to those that follow him. And so no doubt, again, their approach to Scripture would have been impacted by the discourse that they had with Jesus. You see that in Luke? The last chapters in Luke when Jesus walking with them on the road to Emmaus and he says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself. Or when he came into the room with them, doors closed, Jesus appears, and they say, wow, this is our resurrected Lord. And then he says to them in 
chapter 24, verses 44 to 45. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand scriptures. You see, this too should be our interpretation key as we view all of scriptures. We view scripture in light of Jesus. Whether you're reading the Psalms, whether you're reading the prophets, whether you're reading Moses, whether you're reading Chronicles, whatever you're reading in the scripture points to Jesus. It has things to say. It has pictures. It has shadows of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, all that he promised, his return, his reign that will come. All of the scriptures point to Jesus. And this is how Peter encouraged the brothers and sisters to interpret what has happened to them right now. This is the lens he wants them to use. The perspective on their particular incident with Judas. They want us and they needed to realize that as it relates to Judas, this was a part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Everything that happened to them, specifically this very horrible fall and judgment of Judas, wasn't some random sign it wasn't a picture that yo things out of control but rather it was known rather it was determined by the lord for the fulfillment of his purposes and so luke again uses the time to give an editorial note if you look in your bibles you might see that you see peter speak and then you see something in brackets. Luke is kind of giving you an editorial note. So he kind of fleshes out some more about this horrifying death of Judas. The book of Matthew clarifies that Judas, in his shame and his guilt, he commits suicide. But Luke wants to focus on where all of that took place. We see that with the blood money that he took, other gospels talk about him throwing the money back to the chief priest in shame and running away. It seems that with the money, it was taken to buy a field, a cemetery for foreigners. This is what the blood money was used to do. Again, we don't know how it happened, but in the process of ending his life, Somehow he falls forward and everything come out. Talk about blood all over the streets. The location is what Luke wants to point out. He wants to point out to us that, listen, what happened to Judas happened now in a field Literally called field of blood. And so now to everyone who heard of this, this was clearly a sign that, wow, this is God's judgment. Like what in the world? A field for foreigners to die in. 
someone who was supposed to be a part of the Israelites and a part of the followers of God. This is where he dies? In a field of blood? Yet where and how he dies is very important for the case that Peter wants to make. Peter specifically points out two Psalms. He looks to Psalm 69 verse 25 when he makes the point about may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And then he pulls on Psalm 109 verse 8 to say let another take his office. Again, Peter looks at the Psalms and confirms that the betrayal of Judas, his death, and what happened to him was a part of the plan. But not only that, what's part of the plan is he needs to be replaced. Now I want to say to you, if this idea of being a part of the plan, evil, and some of the most heinous things you can imagine, is a hard pill to swallow, I get it. I am with you. How in the world can... God's plan involves something as heinous as the betrayal of the Son of God. But I like how John MacArthur puts things. This is what he says. God didn't make Judas what he was. Judas made Judas what he was. But God planned Judas into the redemptive scheme. He was chosen by God not apart from his own will, he wasn't made to betray Christ, but he was allowed to be an apostle and to play a role. Guys, listen, Judas was guilty by his own choice. Judas operated freely in his fallen nature. He did what his heart desired to do. Yet he did all of that in the precise fulfillment of the purpose and plans of God. Listen, folks, you and I are free to do whatever we want to do. You hear that? Guys, you are free. Do whatever you want to do. But know this. It's regardless of what you choose to do, God's will, it will be accomplished. Even more, God's will, it will be accomplished in every single person's life. Everybody. No one is going to leave this world and say, ha, God never get to accomplish his will. Everybody is going to accomplish God's will. At the end of the day, all will be able to, all of us will be able to look back at our lives and God will say, listen, I got glory. But understand this, there's only one way that it will be for our good. There's only one way that it will be for our good. Judas serves as a constant reminder of the fate of those who seek freedom in doing what they want to do versus finding freedom in obeying the Lord. It is only through obeying the Lord that your freedom will be for your good. Your freedom... Is going to accomplish the purposes of God. Whether you be a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath. 
as Paul says in Romans. God's will will be done. But only one way it will be for our good. And Judas' judgment is a sharp reminder for us about that. Let us go to our last point. The decision. Verses 21 to 26. So this is where we are now. Peter looks to scripture to make the case that Judas' position of betrayal was a part of the plan. And he also confirms that the next step to take place is to find a replacement. The band must be completed. Its 12th member needs to be found. Albert Mola commenting on the relevance of restoring the 12th member gives a very helpful insight. This is what he says. He says, Peter recognized the significance of having 12 disciples, not 11. For that number mirrored the 12 tribes of Israel. As there, have, as there had been 12 sons of Jacob, as the foundation of God's Old Testament people, so there must be 12 apostles as the foundation of God's New Testament people. So you see, as the people of God are about to step into this new arc of the redemptive storyline, Peter lays out some important qualifications for this person. And I think there we're going to learn some very important things to, to look at. Firstly, this is what Peter says. He says, the disciples, they need to choose somebody who was there from the very beginning. Someone who was there from the beginning. From the beginning of the baptism, from seeing all of the ministry, and also seeing the resurrection. This is very deliberate, and this is important. And what you see is that the disciples in that moment, as they're making this decision, they are being shaped with the gospel in mind. Remember what I said. All of scripture points to the birth, life, death, and resurrection. And he says, hey, who we choose? He needs to be there seeing everything as well. From his ministry started. And so what you realize of paramount importance was the fact that the candidate needed to be around to see the whole story, to be a faithful witness. And again, you can understand that. The man for the job needed to be an eyewitness. It, they needed to confirm exactly what Jesus taught. They needed to have confirmed what he said and what he did. You see, a pillar of our faith is always this idea of this first-hand testimony of all that Jesus has done. Our Christian faith, GFC, loses all credibility and all relevance in life if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply a fable and a nice story to tell versus actual eyewitness account. Our faith is founded on facts. And if it isn't, guys, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Let's just do that. 
And so that left them with two suitable candidates that met the criteria. They said, Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justus, and Matthias. That is who they said, all right, these are the guys that fit the profile. Here's a second thing that you see. They sought the Lord in prayer. What's interesting, they start with this posture of prayer and they continue in like manner. This is what the scripture says. You, Lord, you know the heart of all. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostolship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. You see, the disciples, as they come to embrace the plan and this unfolding plan that Jesus has, prayer was crucial. And the prayer, it was very focused. It was very specific. Again, as the disciples responding to what they saw as the qualifications in God's word, that's what they did, all right? This is what the word says. Let's gather the data. Who fits in this kind of description? All right, here are all two. They did that, by the way, not by themselves. They made this decision not in isolation, but in the midst of community. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's another subtle thing I want to communicate, by the way, to go off a little. <laughs> Guys, you see, when you're making decisions, community helps. Look to the word. See what it says. Go to the community of faith-based people. Don't make decisions in isolation. But just to go back again, the statement about the prayer is very interesting. He points out, Jesus, you know the hearts. I don't want us to think that the prayer was meant to communicate that the disciples were anxious and saying, boy, Jesus, I don't know what's going on with these two. Maybe this one is another Judas as well. I don't know if that's the motivation. You know, I, I envision that these men were not voluntold. Okay, we see this. You guys are the only ones that fit this. Just like, okay, who, who we think is there? These men probably came with willing hearts to serve in this capacity. But one thing the prayer recognizes is that, you see, Jesus' divine orchestration, it considers unique nuances intricacies of individuals them personality their disposition in different ways that you and i just can't see and so indeed show which one of these two you have chosen because only god foresees the distinct challenges and opportunities that are aligned to each person's individual character and strength only god knows those things and that my friends is so freeing because, you see, you and I don't need to be stuck in this analysis paralysis. Boy, I looked in the Word and I saw things and, okay, I think this is what the Scripture says. All right? I spoke to the community and they're giving this wisdom. All right, cool. But it could be this, this, and this. What I must do? Yo, God, you know. You know the hearts. You know the hearts of men. You know my hearts. You know what's going on. That's really what you're seeing. 
We, like the disciples, can entrust ourselves to the ways God's guidance is both grand in its design, yet very meticulous and specific. And so that trust is what you see now expressed in the final action of this chapter. So after using all the wisdom of scripture, after praying specifically for the Lord to choose the right man for the job, they simply place their confidence in the sovereign rule of God. And so you see them pulling on a Jewish practice of casting lots, which really caused them to understand the heart of what Proverbs 16.33 says, that says, the lot is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, randomness is a myth. There is no accidental outcome. There is no arbitrary incident. There is no haphazard, no chance, no buck-ups. That is outside of the reach of God's careful and intentional plans. And so the lot, it fell on Matthias. He is the one that will now be numbered among the eleven. And now become the twelve. The apostles knew both Joseph, no doubt, and Matthias. He, they knew that they both were qualified. They both witnessed Jesus' first-hand ministry. They affirmed the faith. They were serving the Lord. We have no reason to think that both men were not also filled with the Spirit in chapter 2 and played very specific roles among God's new community of people. But Jesus was only choosing one to serve in this particular role. And it's why when it came to the final choice, they could just entrust the outcome to the infinite wisdom and the purposes of Jesus, who had chosen the original 12 and has now chosen Matthias as Judas' replacement. As we close, you see, at the beginning, I noted that this passage is not intended to be some lesson in how to make great decisions. But what it does do, it certainly shapes how we can embrace the plans of God and do the things that God is calling us to do. What we see in this passage is that God's unstoppable plan to spread his gospel to all of the corners of the world is going to be accomplished. No matter the obstacle that comes, nothing is stopping God's plan. That plan involves living and working through a community of people devoted to him. These people, they orient themselves to a few things. Fellowship, prayer, and the word. And their perspectives, they are shaped and informed by all that is revealed to them in the word of God. In what the gospel says. And that gives them freedom to entrust themselves to him, regardless of whatever roadblocks they face. Listen, GFC, if you have come to know the good news, you are a beneficiary of this unstoppable plan that started with a few guys, 120 people in a room, that came all the way here onto the island of Jamaica. 
Our faith is not founded on mere chance or a coin toss. It is rooted deeply in God's purposes that transcends human limitations and human failures. And so GFC made that reality give you and I courage to trust in the rule of Jesus as we play our role in his unfolding plan where God is redeeming a people, calling them to himself for his glory. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Sean Taylor, a pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.